0: Good evening church, Uh, I am Alexander, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you guys to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Uh, In your copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 9, and once you are there, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, I'll be reading from verse 1. And he called the twelve together And he sought to see him. This is the word of the Lord. Be you guys can be seated. As we uh, are continuing now in our study of Luke's gospel, uh, we have finished chapter 8 last week, and so naturally this week we will be uh, starting chapter 9. Um, A brief recap for the purpose of uh, the flow of thought in Luke's Gospel. One of the things we've been looking at the last several weeks, actually since we've picked up in Luke at the end of the summer, uh, we've been looking at uh, chapter 8 and the four various accounts in Luke's Gospel of the authority and the power and what kind of authority and power Jesus possesses. Uh, One of the things we've noticed is that Luke portrays Jesus as one who has authority over nature, over disease, over the demonic forces, and even over death itself, and that this is authority an authority that resides within him. It's not something he has to go uh, outwards to go get. He doesn't have to pray for it. It's an authority that uh, is embodied by his ministry. But Luke is not gonna pause the argument there. It, now he's gonna transition in, in Luke 9, and he's gonna tell us about a time in the ministry of Jesus where that authority is passed on from Jesus to his disciples, whom uh, whom we would refer to as the apostles, the 12. That account is the one that we just read. And then you kind of have the account of that happening, the instructions that are given to them. And then you kind of see the fallout of, of that ministry, particularly in the confusion and in the response of the the gossip and the response of Herod uh, at the close of that section. So this whole section in Luke's gospel is almost a a transition point, a a point where the authority of Jesus that has just been established is now taught to us as being passed on through his apostles. And so we're going to kind of take a look at what all that has, what what is the significance for us today about those things. Um, And to do so, we're just going to be working through this uh, line by line. Uh, if you would like a, a title or a heading for this study, it is, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And that's language uh, you might be familiar with. That's language that has, uh, has been talked about. We read that out actually every Sunday at the end of service, uh, where Jesus proclaims to the 12 disciples uh, and, and everyone who's there with him, that you will be my witnesses. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. and and I will be with you always. He's giving his authority to them in that moment as well. But that's not the the first time he gives that authority, that's actually the time he gives it right before he he ascends. Uh, And so his his authority pattern, how he gives his authority to the disciples actually starts here as Luke records for us once, and then it happens again a little bit later, and then it happens again uh, right before his ascension. And so look with me at verse one in your copy of God's word and read with me. It says, and he called the 12 together, and he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. These first two verses are the description from Luke's perspective of of a summary of what's happening. So Jesus calls the 12 to himself. He calls them uh, and he bestows upon them power and authority. Uh, Sometimes the language used is just, he bestows upon them authority. Uh, or power. Luke actually uses both terms because he's trying to be clear that it's not just the teaching authority of Jesus, but it's also the healing power that he carries with him as well. He bestows both those things onto the the twelve. And this is not the first time we've been introduced to the twelve. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter six, Jesus actually calls out of a group of disciples the twelve. He names them specifically. He kind of lists them out. and then he goes and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to instruct the 12. He brings them along with him to uh, the various trips that he goes uh, into all the land. And now they've studied under him a little bit. He's, he's taught them. He's, they've seen significant miracles at his hand, including the calming of the storm, the, the uh, freeing of the demoniac, uh, and the bringing uh, the, the pr- various people back to life, back from the dead. And, and now he's going to send these 12 out with authority, with power, to go and to proclaim as it says here uh, the kingdom of god we've uh we've seen this uh, a handful of times before in in luke's gospel where they talk about the gospel that's being preached by jesus as a gospel that is to be, be described as a gospel of the kingdom of god so there's two things happening one is they're they're given a message they're preaching about the kingdom And the second thing that he gives to them, or really the first thing in in chronology, is they're given power and authority. Now, why would they need to be given these two things in conjunction? Why do they need both the right message, right doctrine, and healing authority power to do these things? Well, we've even asked this question about Jesus in, in his earthly ministry. Why does he have to do healings, miracles, displays of power? Why does he have to do those things and also preach soundly repentance and the kingdom why does he have to do those things john the baptist didn't do that john the baptist just preaches repentance why does jesus need both of those things why do his disciples need both of those things we've talked about this before the healing and the authority over the demons is not the end of the ministry of jesus it's not the the purpose of his ministry the purpose of his ministry is repentance and faith the conversion of hearts into the kingdom of God, and the advancement of that kingdom into the world. But, how do you know that Jesus is not some false prophet, crazy person who just woke up one day and said, you know, the carpentry business isn't going so well, I think I'm going to go become an itinerant preacher, I'm going to get followers for myself, and then I'm going to teach this message that sounds pretty close to believable, it sounds winning, you don't need to listen to the Pharisees anymore, you don't listen listen to the Sadducees, follow me and I'll teach, I'll be entertaining, and maybe I'll make some money on the way. Why do we know that that's not what Jesus is doing? Well, the reason we know is because he doesn't just do those things. He also has authority. He also has power. He, he does miraculous works so that it's hard to deny what he's teaching. This is uh, most, we've, we, there's a bunch of examples of this in scripture, but the, the one that's probably most familiar to you or the one that's most commonly brought up is uh, Jesus when talking with Nicodemus in John chapter three. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he's perplexed by what Jesus is saying, he's confused about all the miraculous things that have happened, uh, and he, but he doesn't quite, he's not so quite sure about the teaching part of Jesus' ministry, but he's, he's wrestling with it and he says, Lord, I don't know, but n- we know that no one can do these things unless they're sent from God. No one can heal, no one can do these miraculous works unless they're from God. And that's the thing that causes Nicodemus to wrestle. It's not the teaching of Jesus that causes him to wrestle. He could just dismiss it except for it comes with authority. It comes with power. And that's what gives Nicodemus pause. It's the same thing that gives the Pharisees pause, right? Jesus declares people to be free of their sins and he also heals their arm back to life or he he raises them up from a paralyzed state. And this is a problem for the Pharisees because they could just reject his teaching if that's all that it was, but he's also doing powerful authoritative things that are impossible to deny. And he's not done. In Luke's gospel, he's going to do more things as he he goes. But this is what we've seen so far. He does all these powerful things. He comes with a message. And so when he sends his disciples out, he's not just sending them out with a message. That's interesting. He's also sending them out with the same kind of power to do these healings and these these miraculous works. Why? Because when they go into their Galilean ministry and they preach and they, they teach and they proclaim the gospel, what if they bump into people who are saying, well, By what authority do you speak? On on whose behalf are you talking? How do we know that you're not some person who just woke up one day on the side of the road and decided you're going to make a name for yourself and you're going to come preaching a different kind of message than what we hear from our rabbis? How do we know that that's not who you are? Well, you'll know, you'll be sure of that, by the fact that he gives them authority to heal and not not heal uh, vague injuries. He gives them authority to heal in the same way that he heals. You even see this uh, in the book of Acts where uh, Peter heals someone who's who's visibly ill for like a long period of time and they need healing and he, he heals them it's a it's a obvious to all what's just happened that kind of healing instantaneous obvious undeniable and he gives them authority over the demonic forces so that when demons when they encounter them which seem to be all over the place in Jesus's earthly ministry when they bump into someone who's possessed they can free this person of demonic affliction and they can uh, Uh, exert power and authority over the demonic forces. So anyone who sees this spiritual affliction knows that whatever authority these people represent, they represent a higher authority than the demonic. They represent a higher authority than the evil forces which afflict us. So he invests them with not only a message, an orthodox message, but also he invests them with power to do things so that people can't deny the message that they're proclaiming. So Hang on to that idea. This is, this is a sign and seal of his authority, his commission to them. He's made them his ambassadors. And then he gives some instructions. Verse 3, he gives them a couple of weird instructions. He says, don't take anything with you for your journey. Don't take a staff. Don't take a bag. Don't take bread. Don't take money. And don't even take a second tunic. Don't take two tunics. So that's, that's an interesting set of rules, right? Why would he tell them to not bring basic necessities for their mission? A walking staff so that they can, as they're traveling, you know, traverse uh, questionable terrain. There's no paved roads in those days. You know, there's some commonly traveled roads, but imagine they're going hiking. They're traveling through from city to city, town to town. These are not comfortable walking ways, so they need a staff to help navigate that. They need a walking stick. He tells them, don't bring that. He also says, don't bring a bag. Now, there's some debate as to what he's referring to. He could be referring to just a bag that helps them carry things. He could also be referring to a bag that is more common from the philosophers of that day. Uh, this kind of bag would have been uh, something that philosophers or theologians would, would use essentially as their, their coin bag. So if you've ever seen a musician uh, play on a street corner or play downtown somewhere, they, sometimes they open up their instrument case. Sometimes they have something there where if you are pleased with what they're saying, if you're pleased with their entertainment, you can, you can donate. You can give something to show appreciation for them. It's not all that different from the philosophers in those days. They would, they would go to the town square. They would go to the city hall. They would debate. They would teach people. They would instruct them. And they would have these bags, these little purses, that would, they would use to collect money. And so he's, he might be saying, don't bring a bag that carries necessities. He might also be saying, don't bring a bag so that you can get money out of people when you teach them this message. Why would he say that? Well. He he probably doesn't want people thinking the only reason the disciples are sharing this message with people is so that they can use people, exploit people for their benefit. This is not the purpose of Jesus's ministry. In fact, Jesus is described several times as being probably below the poverty line in the Judean area. And that's not because he doesn't have skills to make a name for himself. He's, He's a carpenter by trade. He can do these things, he can make himself money. But he chooses to go without that business. He preaches itinerantly, and he does that not for the sake of his own financial accumulation, but for the purpose of having people hear the message of the kingdom of God. He doesn't want his disciples doing the same thing. He doesn't want them exploiting people for money. Interesting, we see that same teaching from Paul in the New Testament where he tells the church in Corinth, I I could exact money from you. I could if I wanted to, but I don't want you thinking the only reason I'm preaching this gospel to you is so that you think I can make a buck off of you so I've forgone my right as an apostle. I'm, I'm not gonna take money from you. So this is, this is one of the t- instructions he gives to his disciples. Then he tells them two other things. He says, don't bring bread, and don't bring silver, or don't bring money. Now, both of those are, are euphemisms. Uh, don't bring bread, don't bring uh, food, material provisions, which could imply bread itself, but it also could be any kind of food sustenance, right? They're not supposed to go fully packed for the journey, Like if you were to go hiking through some remote part of the wilderness, you pack all the food that you're gonna bring, you pack it with you. And when you travel, you eat it along as you go because you're not planning on finding any food out as you go, right? He's telling them, don't pack food for yourself. Why? Because the implication is you have to rely on my sustenance, my providence, so that when you go to a different town, I will provide food for you in the people there and their hospitality. And as a testimony to them needing to lean on him a little bit, he says, don't bring food for yourself. When you go on the journey, you're gonna have to rely on me for food. Same thing with, but money, silver, don't bring those things. Why? Because if you're bringing money with you, you're kind of implying I'm not, I'm going to need to pay at an inn or pay at a place to stay. I'm gonna need to pay my way through tolls in different places as I travel. He's saying, don't do that. You're going to need to rely on me. Don't bring money for yourself. It's also not necessarily clear whether the disciples have a lot of money to go around, except for earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter eight, we found out that there are actually women who are kind of sponsoring the mission and the ministry of Jesus through their generous giving and their generosity. So it's not like the disciples are earning a lot of money. They've remembered most of them have left their jobs, left their previous occupations. So don't bring money, don't bring bread, don't bring a staff, don't bring a bag. And then he says, don't bring two tunics. Likely the implication is don't bring extra clothes either. Because if you bring extra clothes, you're implying that you're not gonna have a place to stay to change out of clothes, things like that. You're gonna need to bring this yourself. He's saying, no, when you go into these cities, I will provide, don't bring these things because you have to trust me and my providence, my provision. And then he gives this kind of secondary interesting instruction. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there. Don't depart from it. And if they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, the first half of instructions might seem confusing, but you know, we can kind of tie those all together with, it's God saying, you need to rely on my providence. Jesus is saying, trust me. You need to trust me as my, when I send you out that I will provide for you on the way. Then he gives another instruction. He says, if you get to a house and the house welcomes you in, stay at that house, don't go bouncing from house to house to house in the villages that you stay in and the towns that you stay in. Why would he have to give that instruction? If not to say that, you know, maybe they arrive in town, someone warmly welcomes them in under Moses' hospitality code in the Old Covenant. Maybe they welcome him in, they take care of him, they provide for these men. And then, as they're preaching, as they're ministering in the town, they do a nice healing ministry, a nice miracle. Then the rich people in the town find out, oh, the disciples are here, they've done these miraculous things this would be good for our reputation, let's, let's host them too. Let's bring them in, let's give them a better menu, a better housing, let's offer that to them. He's saying, hey, when you go and you do this preaching ministry, this healing ministry, and you get offered a place to stay and someone warmly welcomes you into the town, don't forsake that person's hospitality when you get a better deal at a different house, a different place where you might go. Don't bounce around from menu to menu or provision to provision, finding a better deal for yourself along the way. I will provide. It's an interesting instruction and one that I don't think is too far off from us today because I, I think it's, it's so interesting how that same problem that might have plagued the disciples and their temptations is something that often plagues uh, those in ministry today as well, uh, where uh, they might go from job opportunity to job opportunity, leveraging different statuses and accolades kind of up for better benefits, better pay, bigger congregation, you know, and you name it. And I would say that as, as believers in the church, that, that same thing is kind of plagues us as well. You know, we find a church, and we go to a, a church that has a different thing that we like more. And we're not necessarily changing locations, but we're, we're going from place to place to place, kind of upgrading along the way as it fits us. Interesting that he tells his disciples on their ministry, don't do that thing. Don't go from place to place to place. Stay where they welcome you, and don't depart until you leave. And then he tells them, but if they don't receive you, if this town does not welcome you, does not welcome your message, they hear your gospel, they reject it. When you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now I'm, I'm assuming that that is not a, a commonly used euphemism today, uh, shaking the dust off of your feet if you go from place and you have scorn for them. Um, I don't think that's a commonly used euphemism, but I think you kind of get what's being said, but let me just spell it out a little bit more. In Jewish custom, the Jewish people believe they lived in the Holy Land. And when they would travel around to different Gentile regions, they might have to do so for trade for various reasons. When they're coming back, when they're transitioning from the pagan territory, the Gentile territory back to the Holy Land, one of the things they would do, they would take their sandals off and they would shake the dust from their sandals before they go from the pagan territory back into the Holy Land. Why? These are pagans. This is their dust. This is their territory. This is unclean. And this, where I'm entering into, is clean. It's, a, you know, an, a, this is the Holy Land. The Jewish people would do this kind of as a, as a habit, a habitual thing, to declare that this land I'm leaving is pagan. Where I'm going now is, is, is the Holy Land. He uses that same idea to declare what happens to someone if they reject the teaching of Jesus. Remember, he said they're proclaiming the kingdom. So if they go to a, a city, a town, and these people reject the kingdom. When you leave that town, you need to let them know they've just rejected the rightful king. They've just rejected the kingdom. You're going to shake the dust off your feet. As a testimony, they say, you are unclean. You are pagans. You are outside of the kingdom. You rejected me. And then they go to the next place. And, and they may, maybe are welcomed. Maybe the same thing happens. They shake the dust off there. They go somewhere else. Same kind of idea. He says, you're shaking the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. So they've testified towards these people, they've given them proclamation of the gospel, they've likely done miracles. And now if the people reject that testimony, you are a testimony against them. They've heard the message, they've rejected the message, we're going on to the next place. It's interesting kind of the finality of that idea. Now, before we get into what Luke says here about um, the actual kind of summary statement in verse six and then kind of the responses, I want to kind of go, zone in a little bit on verse 5, where you have this idea of the people who reject the apostles reject the kingdom of God. This is an interesting idea in the text of scripture because the reason that it's bad to reject the apostles is because the apostles are the ambassadors of Jesus. So to reject the people who carry Jesus' ministry into that town, that city, that village is equivalent to rejecting Jesus himself. So that's why the apostles are given the authority to shake the dust off their feet as they're leaving because they're saying these people have rejected the king. They've rejected the kingdom. But that's strange because Jesus hasn't showed up there himself. He's, He's given his authority to people and these people go to that city and proclaim and then these people reject kind of these ambassadors of Christ. That's an interesting idea and that's an idea that carries itself all the way through the rest of the new testament because the the kind of succession of jesus gives his authority to the apostles and the apostles give their teaching and instruction to the church this is a succession of authority that we even actually lean on today for orthodoxy for sound doctrine i don't know if you know this but if you were to take the the copy of god's word you have in front of you the entire new testament all 27 books of your new testament have attestation to apostolic authority behind them, else they wouldn't be in the canon. If this does not accord with the teaching of the apostles, this would not have made it into the New Testament. So when we look at scripture, we're not just looking at the writings of thinkers in the early church. We're not looking at the musings or the theologians who hear Jesus' ministry and reflect on what that might be like, reflect on what it might be like, but are culturally bound by those things. We are reflecting on the authoritative teaching of the apostles and those who closely listen to them. And we are saying that this is authoritative as the word of God. It carries the same authority. You reject the scriptures, you're rejecting the teachings of the apostles, which is to reject the teachings of Christ. And as John tells us in 1 John two twenty two and 23, you can know someone's a liar by the one who rejects that Jesus is Christ. You cannot have Christ and you, you cannot reject Christ and say that you have the father. But if you confess that Jesus is Christ, you have not only the Son, but also the Father. This is the problem for Jesus' earthly ministry. People are saying, we have God, we have Yahweh, we don't need Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you reject me, it's like you're rejecting the Father. Same idea, if you reject the apostles, it's like you're rejecting Jesus. In the New Testament, now, if you reject the scriptures, the teaching of the apostles recorded for all time, if you reject these things, you're rejecting the apostles, rejecting the Son, rejecting the Father. Similarly, this scripture that, that is all throughout the New Testament and, and makes up the New Testament also says that part of this authority is vested into the church, the local church. The scripture is over the local church. The scripture governs the structure of the local church. The church does not say this is scripture, this is God's word. Scripture says this is what the local church is like. But the local church is given a similar kind of vested authority on the grounds of scripture to say that this person carries the authority as an ambassador of Christ or is not. This idea is what we would refer to in in today's kind of common language as as membership within the church, membership within the body. Mark uh, Dever uh, has, has a whole series of books describing what is a healthy church. And he has various authors write these various books, but one of the books they wrote is on the mark of church membership. What does it mean to be a member of a local church? And he he describes a scenario in this book where uh, imagine you are someone you walk to where the president gives press conferences, you walk into that building into that podium. Imagine you were to walk up to the podium and you were to speak to the press and say, I speak on behalf of the president of the United States. And this is what I say. Now, none of us would do that unless the president had given us the authority invested with us the, the authority to do that. Right. But there are many today who would say I speak on behalf of Christ who do not have anyone who's externally confirmed or conferred that authority upon them. We do not have authority ourselves to say I speak on behalf of the president unless the president has given us that that seal that approval but many of us would I think mistakenly unfortunately do that we how many times have you talked to someone you share the gospel with them you say this is what God teaches they say who gives you the right to speak on behalf of God you know, who are you to speak and say what God says about such and such a sin or such and such a circumstance? Well, Scripture is authoritative, but it's not just the Scripture, which is an individual relationship between you and the reading of the Bible. Also, Scripture tells us that we need to be identified with the local church because the local church actually confirms who is and who is not a member of the kingdom of God. This is not to say that the local church is Fully authoritative that if you're not a member of the local church, you cannot be saved. That's not what that's saying. Because you could, let's say, be a citizen abroad in another country, have lost your U.S. passport. And that doesn't mean you're not a U.S. citizen if you, if you can't identify that with some kind of documentation proof. But if you go to a U.S. Embassy in that country, the U.S. Embassy could give you confirm, confirmation that you are indeed a citizen of the United States. They could confer with their authority upon you that you are a citizen. And then you could once again have all the rights of a citizen. We don't have the authority if we travel abroad to say I'm just a U.S. citizen. We need to provide proof. Similarly, in the local church, the local church provides proof of our identity in the kingdom of God. It is not that the local church makes us Christians, but the local church is tasked with guarding the membership of the kingdom through baptism and through the the guarding of the Lord's Supper, the guarding of the communion table, to say that these are people who are identified with God, with his authority, who, if you like, speak on his behalf. Not in the same way that the apostles spoke authoritatively. They can create new doctrine. They can write scripture that we must believe upon. That's not the same authority, right? The church, uh, we're told, uh, is founded and grounded on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. This is recorded scripture. But those who live today in the church carry the derived authority of the apostles through believing right, sound doctrine and by identity within the local church. The local church confirms that. Now, this is not to say that there are not churches out there that actually do not speak in any authoritative way for God's kingdom, right? Because the church is not the ultimate authority structure. Scripture is the authority structure over the church. So if you can evaluate a church and you can say, is this church in line with scripture? That is actually the higher step of authority. The church cannot reject scripture and simultaneously say that they speak on behalf of God. So we need to keep those priorities right. This is where uh, Roman Catholicism had gone wrong in the time of the Reformation. They said they actually vested authority into Scripture, not Scripture investing their authority into the church. And that's where the church went wrong there. So Scripture is the highest authority, but the church has authority derived from Scripture to testify to the validity of one's membership in the kingdom of God. This is the the beauty of church membership. If you like, I'll I'll just read a definition of this from, from that book. He says, church membership is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It is a passport. It is an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It is the declaration that you are an official, licensed, card-carrying, and bona fide Jesus representative. This is what the purpose is of membership within the church. Now, the reason I've, we've arrived there, remember, this is not just some tangent. This is tracing the authority structure that Jesus gives to his disciples to preach the kingdom of God. And if we are going to go out evangelizing to the world, we're not just going to go do that loosely without any kind of assurance that we teach rightly. And this is not our idea alone. Actually, Paul, if you remember, he has this miraculous encounter. Jesus himself shows up to Paul, says, why are you persecuting me? Makes him blind. Then he miraculously heals him through another member of Christ's church. And But Paul doesn't immediately turn around and start writing letters, start planting churches. Paul actually goes under the tutelage of the apostles for a period of time where he studies and he seeks confirmation from their authority before he goes out as an apostle. So Paul himself, Jesus shows up in his life and he doesn't think he has the authority to just go randomly preaching around. He first goes to the church for affirmation before he goes loosely and proclaiming the gospel. He wants to make sure his theology is sound, his doctrine is right, that he understands scripture correctly, and then he goes out preaching. Interesting, that's in the book of Acts. If you follow Paul's journey, he doesn't just get saved and become a missionary. He actually studies under the church for some time before he does those things to make sure his doctrine is sound, to make sure he can actually speak with authority when he says, Paul, slave, apostle of Christ Jesus. I speak on his authority. I'm his ambassador. And if you reject my message, let you be anathema as well. He can speak with that authority because he knows this is not just Paul speaking. He's speaking as a representative of Christ Jesus. That's interesting. That's the authority that the church has to speak to the culture with. And I fear that one of the reasons we are so timid when speaking to the culture and speaking to the world is because we're not quite sure if we've got it correct. We're not really quite sure where that authority comes from. And we, we might be concerned, this is just my interpretation of scripture, not necessarily what scripture is actually teaching. Well, you can be sure, and you can be sure because this is God's word. Scripture is God's word. It, is, it has perpiscuity, which means it's, it's easily understood. It's not complex. You don't need a degree in systematics to understand what God's word plainly teaches about certain things. Death, resurrection, confession of sin on Christ, believing on the Lord, believing in the resurrection. Those are not things you need a master's degree or a PhD in to understand. You can have that authority from the local church and you can go into your workplace, into your friend group, into your family, into whatever area of life you find yourself and you can preach with authority and say, I don't speak as the opinion of myself. I speak as an ambassador of Christ on these things. That also means that where Scripture is silent or, let's say, less than explicit on something, we do not have the authority to say, thus saith the Lord, when Scripture does not say. This is a danger in certain communions, in certain groups, in certain fellowships, to say that the Lord speaks authoritatively on this thing when the Lord indeed does not. That's more of an opinion or more of a preference. That is what we would call legalism, to say that this is required for sound doctrine when it's really not by scripture. We want to speak uh, with great authority where scripture speaks with great authority and we want to be less than authoritative, maybe a little bit more cautious when scripture is also a little bit more cautious. We want to balance sound doctrine and authority with a right degree of caution because we don't want our opinions to be God's word because they're not our opinions, they're God's word. And we don't want to conflate those two things. So we want to be careful when we speak about the word of God. Now, Onto Luke verse 6, where he is now summarizing this ministry of the apostles preaching and teaching and healing, testifying against people who reject him. And then Luke summarizes it in verse 6, and he says, they departed, they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they go all over places, not just cities, they go to various regions, towns, all over the place, carrying out this ministry, as we just discussed and the result of this happening, pre- presumably for some period of time, right? There, this is not like you get in a train and you ride to various cities and towns. You can make all of them in you know, a weekend loop, and then you can come back to your hometown. You've got to travel for probably a period of time before you can return back home safe and sound, having completed this, this responsibility. So after a period of time elapses, the result of this mission is verse 7. Herod, the Tetrarch, hears all about what was happening, referring to you know, these things that are, that this preaching, this healing is taking place. And he is perplexed because there's, there's confusion going on. And the confusion is this. Some said that John has been raised from the dead. That's John the Baptist, who we've, the last time we met him in Luke's gospel, I remember he's the one questioning if Jesus is really the Messiah. This is John the Baptist. He was in prison at that time. John has been raised from the dead. Some say that Elijah has appeared. Others say that one of the prophets of old has risen. That could be a reference to Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, all of whom in rabbinical thought could possibly, you know, return to preach to Israel. So this is rabbinical teaching that these various prophets might come back to testify to Israel, might come back to call her to repentance. So this is is all, let's say, orthodox, sound rabbinical thought about who this prophet might be. Now, this is not to say that this is what the rabbis think about Jesus, but this is what happens when the ministry of Jesus, the gospel goes out and word of mouth travels from place to place, town to town. You know, various tradesmen are talking in the marketplace about what they saw, what they heard. And this person tells his family and they tell these other people. And eventually it gets back to Herod. And Herod hears a whole host of testimony. It could be Elijah, it could be John the Baptist, could be one of these other prophets from old. Notice nowhere in there is like the sound assessment. This, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Godson, son, you know, uh, there's, no, there's none of that soundness in there. There's kind of this general confusion about what's happening. Who is this? And Herod at least knows one thing. Verse 9, it says, he knows he beheaded John. So he knows it cannot be John the Baptist because he doesn't re- he's not really sure that that's a thing. He killed him himself. He saw him dead. He saw his head on a platter. Other gospels tell that story of Herod slaying John the Baptist for calling out his sin. So Herod knows it's not John the Baptist. But who is this about whom I hear such things? Different wording. Same question Luke's been asking for a number of chapters now. Who is this? Herod's articulated it. Various people are asking who is this? The disciples ask who is this? Everyone's asking this question. Who is this? And then what it says about Herod is that he sought to see him. Now, if you know about when Herod actually finally bumps into Jesus, it's not during the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's actually when Jesus is being tried before the Supreme Supreme Council of the Jewish Jewish people. The Jewish people do not have authority to, to, to kill with capital punishment. They do not have that authority vested within them. So they need to get Roman permission. Pilate sees Jesus. Pilate says, I will let the Jews decide this. He sends Jesus to Herod because he knows that Jesus is part of that area. Herod sees Jesus and Herod wants to be entertained by Jesus. He finally, you hear, you know, the text is saying he sought to see him. But I don't want you to misunderstand. Herod is not seeking to see Jesus for some conversion, repentance moment. There are ways to seek Jesus, to think about him, to seek after him that are inappropriate and ultimately unhelpful. Herod is one of those people, when he bumps into Jesus the night of Jesus' betrayal and his trial, Herod wants entertainment from him. And when Jesus is silent before him, and when he does not provide miracles that Herod wants to see, Herod and his soldiers beat him, and they mock him, and they send him back. Herod ultimately unimpressed by Jesus, the same way he was unimpressed by John the Baptist, who called him to repentance from his sin. It's amazing the amount of grip that a long-term, ongoing, open sin can have on one's heart. Herod, who has this uh, wicked affair with his brother's wife, who is publicly called out for this affair. John the Baptist is thrown in prison as a result of calling Herod out for this affair. And ultimately, he's killed for not refusing to repent of that testimony. Herod has opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. Ultimately, he kills John the Baptist. No sooner has he killed John the Baptist than he bumps into this other Messiah, this, this person who is now doing similar things, doing these miracles, teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God in the same way that John was, and now he's, he's forced with the same question, but no, 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 he's going to stick with his sin, and he wants to seek Jesus to see what he's all about, and when he finally gets a chance to meet him, he actually says, no, 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 I want to commit him to death as well. It's amazing the amount of grip that sin had on, on Herod's life. So also the amazing thing in this text is the amount of confusion generated by Jesus, and I think that's a confusion that really has not ever been resolved throughout human history. If you go through every era of the church, there's always a question about who exactly was Christ? What was he like? Is he God? Is he like God? Is he a creation of God? All the way to today, you have the, the culture at large. Is Jesus a good moral teacher? Is Jesus uh, a prophet? Is Jesus you know, kind of like Muhammad, but for Christianity? Is, who is Jesus? Is he just a rabbi who was misunderstood by the Christians, and they created a religion that they weren't supposed to? There's all this confusion, all this speculation about who Jesus is. And I think it's interesting that that speculation takes place in the context where the clear teaching is actually the actual message is being taught. He's he's the person who's commissioning in the kingdom of God. That's the teaching the apostles are going out with. He's the one with the authority. He gave us the authority. We're teaching about the kingdom. It's his authority. Everyone misunderstands this, and they say, "You know, who is this? It could be a prophet." You know, but they're not taking the face value answer from the apostles. They're speculating. I think it's so interesting that that same thing happens today. If you if you don't believe me, go to any coworker of yours, go to any college student you might be uh, in in relationship with, go to go to anywhere at all, and ask the question, "Who do you think Jesus was? What do you what do you think about Jesus?" And and just listen and hear. Don't don't make a face. Don't don't press on that too hard just just ask who do you think jesus was and and listen to what is said and if you think that was just a one-off ask two three ten twenty fifty a hundred people who do you think jesus is when people do this who who run surveys who run polls they will they will say you know the general consensus of america is jesus came to taught us how to how to live better how to live in a way that loves one another. Ultimate teaching of Jesus is love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus' teaching. Be kind to one another. It's not really God, though. Probably didn't do those miracles. You know, not, not the rest of the stuff that's recorded about him. Just that one saying, that's who Jesus was. And that iteration of truth is kind of all over our land. Confusion about who Jesus is. And all the more that underscores the necessity of having sound doctrine about who he is knowing with authority what we can say about Jesus. No, 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 he's not Elijah. He's not a prophet. He's not calling Israel to repentance like Elijah did. He's actually the solution to Israel's repentance problem. He's actually the one who's going to stand in the place of Israel's sins and in the sins of all those who would believe on him. And he's going to take on the wrath of God for these people. He's going to die in their place. He's going to resurrect as a confirmation that this sin is paid in full. He's going to be walking around. He's gonna then commission his disciples again into the world to preach and teach this message to the people. This is who Jesus is. Not a good moral teacher. Certainly yes, but to say that is, is so beneath what Jesus is. Yes, he's a prophet, but he's so much more than just a prophet. Yes, he's a king, but he's not a king like Herod's a king. He's not a king like Caesar's a king. He's not a king like uh, the president of the United States is a king and ascends over something. He's a king, but so way, so way beyond those other kings. Who is Jesus? This is the question Hare is asking. This is the question that's got a lot of confusion generated. This is a question that is still confusing to people today. So as we go into the world, as we engage with the world around us, there are some interesting conversations we can have about faith and theology and life. I think that there's one conversation we need to be having about faith and theology and life. And this is the question that you need to be asking. Who do you think Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? That is the question. Not so much, you know, what do you believe about theistic evolution? Not so much, you know, what do you think about such and such a political party? Those might be relevant conversations, but it's not the central question that needs to be asked. It's not the central hermeneutic theology apologetic that the church needs to engage in because when we go out into the world, we are taught to teach people about Christ, about his kingdom, about repentance, and about faith. This is what we're commissioned into. And that's not to say that living in discipleship, right relationship with Jesus, doesn't require certain decisions, certain lifestyle choices, certain ways of conducting ourselves, but these other things are not central to who Jesus is and what he's like. If you establish that as a cornerstone of belief, everything else follows by his grace and his spirit. But if you don't establish that as a central corner piece and you convince someone of sound thinking, maybe moralistic, therapeutic deism, maybe the need for a God, but not necessarily the need for Jesus, you've not really moved the needle on their soul in any way, shape or form. This is the central thing that the disciples are proclaiming. This is the central question that we need to be answering for people and we need to be forcing them to ask as well, who is Jesus? about whom I hear such things. In the world, there's great confusion, but at the church, we can speak with authority on these things, about who Jesus is, about what he was like, about what he came to do. And this is not our opinion about Jesus. This is not our truth about Jesus. This is God's revelation about himself for all time, vested into scripture, vested into the church for the advancement of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and constantly sharpening us. You tell us by your spirit that your word is living and active, that it pierces our hearts, it renews our mind, it shapes us, it conforms us into the image of your Son. By your grace, God, would you cause your word to do these things in our hearts. Lord, command whatever you want from us. And Lord, grant us the grace to conform to those commands. Would you, by your grace, renew us, change us, transform us, and save us from ourselves? We ask and we pray in your name. Amen.